What's going on, everybody? My name is Rob, and I'm the host of The Curated Culture, a weekly podcast dedicated to dissecting the latest and greatest news from around the world of tech and pop culture. Now, we all know the internet can be a busy, noisy place, so let us calm that noise for you. Join us as we discuss the latest and greatest topics from the people and sources that matter most. Check us out every Thursday as we jump into fresh, original content, new interviews, and a host of other subjects that we know you'll find interesting. So jump in whatever your favorite podcast app is and search The Curated Culture. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. And in the meantime, we'll catch y'all on the air. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, and welcome back to Realistic Sustainability. I'm Mike, and for the second week in a row, I am here with my brother, the Duke of Dishes, Nick. The Duke of Dishes. <laughs> uh, well, you may call me Lord Suds for short. I don't know. I love your your food intros, but uh, the Duke of Dishes. Listen, I haven't, I haven't maintained a dish pit in a very long time. Okay? No, not doing dishes, making dishes. And I don't mean by pottery the cool layouts of beautiful food like you post on Facebook. I have not done that in a while. Um, I actually, I, I've been lazy. So I, I had this idea. I was like, you know what? I'm going to start a little, little video like session, not session, a series. That's the word we're looking for. Sorry, Mike, I haven't consumed my uh, standard amount of coffee yet. A video series called soul boxing, where I go to the local grocery stores and I only buy things that are on clearance or red stickered or, you know, price to sell. And I make a dish out of it and put it online. Now, the problem with with that is it takes time to do. And time is a rare commodity in my life. So uh, <laughs> I, I have the intro and I went shopping and I, I, I recorded my shopping experience, which when people see it, they'll see my hair and they'll know it was first thing in the morning because I don't have a bandana or anything on. I'm just in my natural glory. I have it here at the house. I just haven't actually done anything with it yet. So uh, if I ever ever get to that i will become the duke of dishes sir i will become the what's the word it's almost like there's another word for cook uh god it's on the tip of my tongue oh chef yeah that um i'm gonna make some food later i just have to allocate the time well i believe that you're still the duke of dishes no matter what and i and i mean it as i say it even if you haven't posted in a while i enjoy seeing them now not every meal is me but i love seeing the uh, the presentation of it all so Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And, and, it's and you, photography. And you know it's not all specifically food that I would generally choose because it's fancy. Jamie does try to get me outside the box, but you know I've come a long ways from our our childhood meat and potatoes uh, kind of upbringing, but I'm still not quite there. No, I, I Well, listen, I, I do believe that, yes, you have – leaps and bounds of progress in terms of your palate being you know not so much of a child anymore your palate like you are you're 46 40 you're almost 47 now gosh darn it easy Um, easy now 
I know, right? Your palate, though, your palate's a solid 15 years old. You have a younger palate than your oldest son, which is a li- which is amazing. But no, it yeah, all joking aside, you do you've come a long way with trying new foods, and you've come to where you a lot and some some of your favorite restaurants you don't even get anything of meat like the vegetarian options. Which reminds me, I have a vegetarian dish you're gonna have to try because it, it's it's simple but it's stupid good. It's, well, I would love to because I'm trying more and more. I'm learning that vegetarian doesn't always mean healthy. Oh, no, this is not even close. (laughs) It usually just means meatless. But like at Ambiamos, I really want to take you there, have you taste that, and have you reproduce it because it's one of my favorite dishes that I can find. You said it time and time again, and I've told you, let's do a double date thing. Let's get the wives. And if you keep saying this, I'm just going to say put up or shut up. Let's go. (laughs) I am all about Italian food. But no, you're right. Vegetarian in no way, shape, or form means healthy. Now, there was always this stigma when we were younger because vegetarianism was just this this taboo type of uh, not not to say that it was wrong. It, it's just not something that was foreign to us. We didn't really know a whole lot of people that were vegetarians by choice because we lived in a meat and potato community. So when you did meet a vegetarian, they almost always seemed lethargic and ridiculously skinny. And so it created this bad stigma, at least around where we lived, about being a vegetarian. But I can promise you that I can get you fat on vegetables easily. Now, I can't do it on vegan. I can't. I'm a ter- <laughs> I'm a terrible vegan chef. Like, my idea of cooking vegan is cooking vegan. Now, I'm going to say this as easily as I can. I 100% support anyone that wants to be a vegan. I have no problem with that lifestyle, whether it be something you choose or it's a dietary restriction. I think it's great. I have a huge problem with chemically changing vegetables and pea proteins to turn them into meat. I hate it. And I understand the notion that the reason they're doing it isn't because they want me. It's because they want meat eaters to be easy, like more easily willing, some, you know, like, like more willing and open-minded to try something that doesn't come from an animal. But the fact of the matter is, A, the amount of terrible damage to the environment, fields and fields and fields of like soy create, just to clear them, all the animals and the the small insects and everything they kill, just to plow and put there so you can have your, you know, your vegan toast, whatever it is you're doing with it, vegan butter, vegan whatever, is not any better for the environment than a field of cows. It's not like it's, it's, it's not, it's different. It's bad in its own way. And and so if you're gonna if you're gonna preach to being vegan, that's fine. I love fruit. I love vegetables. And you could do some amazing things with like olive oil and in place of butters and stuff. Like you really can make some amazing, completely animal product free meals, but they're gonna be exact they're gonna be very simple and very you take it as you get it, meaning that it's gonna be natural, raw ingredients, or natural and simply cooked ingredients that are as close to as nature provided as possible. And that's to me, that's what a vegan should be. Am I going to catch a lot of hate for that statement? Absolutely. And I don't care. I will stand on this hill all day long, but sorry. I know it was a rant. I apologize. Moral of the story is I can get you fat of vegetables, Michael. Well, and I don't see those alternatives the way most people do. I just see it as a, as another option. So it doesn't matter if your Whopper is made of plants or if you've bought the chicken nuggets from the store that are plant-based to me they're just different options they're they're another opportunity to have a different kind of food and i'm trying as everybody knows to slowly work myself back down to a point where i can be closer to a vegetarian i probably never make it there i'm looking at 
always reducing my meat intake to three to four ounces. I do enjoy good vegetarian dishes. I, I I always feel like more effort is taken into those than any of the dishes that I get that are just a slab of meat on the plate. It seems like time is spent in the spices and different taste textures in those dishes than, oh, I just took this, slapped it on the plate. You're going to buy it because it is what it is. Well, so you're, you're not wrong. I mean, I've always said that... Uh, Oh, here we go with this, the hate statements again. The steakhouse is blue collar's illusion of quality. And so like a steakhouse is what, when you talk to most people that want to go to a nice restaurant, it's always Texas Roadhouse, Outback Steakhouse, Lucky's. It's some house that beef built where they slab a giant piece of an animal on a plate and you get a baked potato with it. And I don't get me wrong. I, I enjoy steak quite a bit. My point is though, is that it's very simple cooking. It's like, to, like a toddler could do it. When it comes to different types of meals like that, like vegetarian dishes, anything that's going to involve like the complete deconstruction of, of, of an an, uh, not animal, plant, yes, it takes a lot more skill and it takes a lot more care and appreciation of flavors and ingredients to create something really beautiful versus, well, I killed this cow, I bled this cow, stuck it on some fire, let's eat it. Right. Well, and yeah. so this leads into our conversation because when I go to a steakhouse, it's been years since I've actually purchased a steak i i have a little bit of beef because we sometimes have hamburger and things or we maybe we order something from from your selection that is a beef but it's rare we usually do chicken and pork but when i go to a steakhouse i almost exclusively buy fish when i go to restaurants if it's not a vegetarian dish it's usually a fish dish and jamie has taught me that when you travel you buy what they make. You try the thing that they do best. And the last big travel was Hawaii. And I ate almost exclusively pineapple and fish. But as we all know, the industry, the fish industry, has changed dramatically in the last 20 or 30 years. And it makes me wonder, am I making a good choice when I decide to go out and have those meals? Because I like grouper. I like swordfish. And I learned the term poke is just in whatever fish that was brought in that day. But I like seafood. I've learned to like seafood because we never grew up with seafood. It's not something that was ever cooked in the house uh, at either home for me. And it is something I've learned that I really enjoy. I learned that small portions are still acceptable. I'm still satisfied. I can have a huge pile of vegetables, maybe even some cubed up potatoes and a three to four ounce piece of fish. But is it okay still? Is it better? Is it worse? Because the more you learn about the fishing industry, the worse shape it's in. Oh, that's a lot to unpack. And that is a um, that's a hard topic to approach because. Personally, for me, and we've had these conversations, I've always believed locally sourced is the best. But when it comes to seafood, you have two options, fresh or salt water. Fresh water is easier to get locally sourced stuff, but it's also going to be a much lower selection of things. And most people, when you say seafood, they instantly go to shrimp or they'll go to like fish and chips. And as much as I enjoy, and I do enjoy both those things, you're not going to get locally sourced shrimp in Michigan. You're not going to get fish and chips in Michigan, unless you're specifically getting a lake fish. Perch, you can get locally sourced. It's delicious. It's wonderful. But when you go to a restaurant and get fish and chips, it's normally cod or pollock or haddock. And all those are 
commercially farmed fish. I, I am not an advocate for fish farming of any capacity. I think it's terrible. I think that it is in a lot of ways worse than commercial farming for you know land animals. It's very different, obviously. Now, with that being said, does that mean that it's going to make you sick when you eat it? No. I mean, there is a higher probability that you could ingest something with, you know, the bad stuff. Because we, we ingest that stuff all the time in our vegetables. Yeah, antibiotics. And and... Yeah, there, there's there's all different kinds of things we actually eat in micro doses that you don't realize because it's not enough to actually hurt you. And so they don't really talk about it. But when you have these fish that, that, are, that are really like they're swimming in a giant net that's shaped like a circle and they're just going, if they have enough room to move, they're going in circles, but oftentimes they can hardly, they barely can move enough to, uh, to keep the water flowing over their gills to breathe. And, and they're fed these fish pellets, which are just made from dead fish anyways. And so they don't have the opportunity to travel through nature and, and get the nutrients. Uh, you see it most with fish in the salmon family, because salmon is like a naturally pink fish, pink to orange. And that comes from uh, the food they eat in the wild, algaes and different things like that, um, that give you that fish a certain color. Well, the farmed fish is actually like more of a grayish white color. And they, they put it in a, they soak it in a dye to give it that natural color. But it's it's not near the same, and it, it doesn't give you that same flavor. It's also like it's fattier in a different kind of way. While salmon is a naturally oily fish and has lots of good fats, the farm stuff seems to be very fatty. Like when you cook it, it, it just oozes out of it. Like it's I don't know how else to describe how how unappetizing it looks if you leave it on the flame for a second too long and it starts to overcook. It just oozes out of it, and it becomes this dry lump of grossness. Well, and I didn't know that. Fishing had already ramped up before I ate more of it, but fishing doubled historically in 1960. That's when it started to dip into the reserves of species. When I say the reserves of species, I'm talking about the sustainability factor or the tipping point of a species. That when we fish, just like hunting or any other thing where we're getting food from nature, that there's a certain level in which that species can maintain and that they will either maintain their numbers or increase them, even though you're pulling from them. So you end up with a positive feedback loop. The nutrient you know, comes to us. There's enough within the species to continue on, and it's still flourishing just at a slower rate than it would have naturally. And let's face it, there's also other predators that adjust that. But in 1974, it was assessed that 90% of global fish species were still being fished at a sustainable rate. Now, were they? I don't know. But in 1974, that was the assessment. In 2017, that number has dropped to 65%. We have lost any species that we deem to be good is being depleted. And it's being depleted much faster then the species can procreate or replenish itself. And it's either A, from overfishing, or B, from habitat destruction. Well, Sometimes it's, a, it's C, it's all of them. It's, it, I would be willing to bet when it comes to seafood, it's always C. Because specifically fish, I mean, you can look at it this way. Tuna is probably one of the most widely fished species in the world. And I say that because it's one of the most common fish to see dead canned packaged on a shelf where it could sit for months or years versus other things which are frozen and then deep fried or, or frozen and grilled like like salmon and what's the other one um oh gosh i'm having a brain fart trout 
which is a cousin of the salmon. You see those often too. A lot of people had salmon patties growing up. Canned salmon is a common thing, but a lot of fish, you know, they come out of the water, they go to the market, and then they go to restaurants or they go to like a big wholesale provider that just cleans them, fillets them into smaller pieces, cods like this, and it gets frozen and shipped off. When you have that type of drastic pull out of a population, while simultaneously the vehicles of which are doing the pulling are destroying where the fish live. And when I say habitat, I don't mean like, oh, they're destroying the bottom. I mean, they're just polluting the water. You know, it's, it, like they're polluting where they, where they breed. The harder it is for an animal to exist in a certain area, the less likely it's going to be to reproduce at all. There's drastic amounts of different types of animals that especially see in, in you know, aquatic life that don't reproduce unless the conditions are right. It's it's not like a decision. It's just in there. And then biologically, they just won't do it. And so when you have those two factors, and then you look at the notion that, and we've talked about this a lot, the amount of food that's wasted every single year, it's no wonder that the, the current populations to what we know as an extent are not sustainable also and i want to say this i've this i've preached this for a long time while being a chef while being someone who enjoys the option to go to the store and buy whatever i want there is a hundred percent no reason why some little fat kid in michigan should be able to walk into the store and buy crab legs if you want to talk about sustainability having these products available across all 50 states is not sustainable not in if you look over like a hundred another hundred years well we're going to destroy half the populations we eat or the things we like to eat but always can't afford i mean shrimp shrimp's farmed and there any grocery store you go into is going to carry shrimp there's tons of shrimp but some of these other species that don't reproduce quite as quickly because really i mean shrimp are just aquatic bugs it's all you're eating is a crustacean it's they're fantastic but they're not it's not real food um it's not, it's not a fish it doesn't swim away it just lays there to be eaten I'm just being goofy now. I apologize for that. But uh, it's just, uh, it's a lot more impactful to look at the big picture than people are going to realize. And I know it ruffles a lot of feathers the wrong way, but like if they want to talk about truly locally sourced seafood, they should see what they have around them. Do you have lakes around you? Okay. Do you like lake fish? Well, you don't know. Go try it. You know, go, go fishing, catch a bass, catch a bluegill, get your hands on it. Or go to a restaurant that locally sources through what they catch. You know, that was one of the things I loved about Italy is that the owner of a restaurant every morning got up. I didn't say they went out fishing, but they went out to the local market where people were fishing that, you know, late, late, late last night and early this morning and were pulling things that were just pulled from the ocean. That when I was in Italy, the, the fruits and the vegetables and all those, all the sources were put on the table that day Mm -hmm. and that's what they used to cook the one thing i'm realizing now that i have a jameson who teaches me and drags me all over the place is that we are damaging the oceans we are damaging these uh we're damaging the numbers in the ocean to 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 be sustainable because we want it available and when you go to a place like Hawaii or someplace, uh, we, we, we go to the lake house over in Muskegon, which is right off the lake, and they get locally sourced fish. And it's, almost, it's exclusively things from the, the Great Lakes. You, there's a distinct difference in the taste that when you get a crab leg in Michigan and you get a crab leg in Maine, you're not getting the same experience. It's no different than when you get pineapples in Hawaii and when you get pineapples in Michigan. You're not getting the same experience. So we're not only depleting the source, but we're losing the reason why we want it. 
because the experience is so watered down. Yeah, you know, now you're buying the name. How many times have you bit into something and it was like a witness protection flavor? It's just completely missing. The one of the I agree. One of the best examples of that is buying apples from the grocery store that were flown in overseas versus buying apples from a local orchard. It's a huge difference, it, and it's it's an easy difference to explain just because it, you know it, they're apples, right? So how different can they be? Oh my God, can they be? Uh, you go to the store and buy Granny Smith or something, and you can see usually they'll tell you where they're from. And I'm not saying all grocery stores carry ones that are from overseas, but some do. And when you get those, they they put a almost like a waxy preservative coating on the outside that uh, that stops the airflow uh, in and out of the apple so that they don't degrade as fast. And once, even if when you wash that off, the, the apple just has a dull flavor. It's almost like someone sucked the life out of it. Is it edible? Yes. Does it taste bad? No, not really. But it it doesn't have that crispness, that that refreshing essence that an apple should give you when you bite into it. And that's an apple. Now, when you talk about like an animal that was caught, cleaned i'm sorry caught killed cleaned frozen shipped 800 miles away that sits in a freezer for someone to hopefully buy it you're right there's a huge difference in quality one of my favorite stores in flint it's called donlin's it's a it's a fish store they get their fish flown in depending on what you're buying two three times a week they, they have a supplier that comes in from the coast but two-thirds of their store is frozen so they're the crab legs and a lot of their their like their mackerel and their their lower volume items, they, they sit in their freezer for God knows how long. I mean, is that going to be amazing when you thaw it out and then cook it? No. It's, I mean, could it be good? Yeah. Chefs do what chefs do. It could be good, but it's not going to be the same as getting it locally sourced and fresh. Yeah. And that's where I, that's one of the places that I learned that story because as a kid, I really liked that flaky cod. Like when you got mm-hmm. fish and chips, it was this really thick, meaty fish. And now, it was, I think, a couple of years ago, I went to Donlin's and bought, I think it was five or 10 pounds of cod. Very excited. You know, you thaw it in some water and you wait and then you bread it and you cook it. And I was very excited, but the quality of the meat has degraded dramatically. And cod's very expensive. There's now, quote unquote, alternative breeds that they use at restaurants instead of cod more likely now because cod has gotten more expensive. Well, yeah, so I'm just going to put a little side note. If you thawed it in water, that was part of your problem. You don't thaw cod in water. How do you thaw cod? Naturally, just let it thaw. Hmm. So yeah, any, is it in cold water? Well, if you're if you're doing it in a hurry and you have thick enough pieces, then you can, but you really have to squeeze the water out of it. Cod is such a watery fish that any added water makes it really hard to get a good product when you fry it. Whether and especially most people fry cod in the wet batter. So if you don't have all that water out of there, and then you do it in a wet batter, you're always going to have watery, soggy cod. There's there's gotcha. no get, there's no getting around it. Cod is expensive. Um, I think we're paying almost a hundred dollars a case for a ten pound case right now, and right. it's it's. I will say that the the fillets are a little different. So when I was younger, they were they were supposed to be three ounce fillets after they were cooked. So you got about four and a half ounce fillets. And now they're three ounce fillets before they're cooked. So the pieces have gotten smaller like right. with, with the ones we're buying. And then if you look at the fish and you'd have to really pay attention to it, but if you look at the fish, um, you can see uh, the, the fillets will have these, these little gray lines on them. Usually that means that that's where the skin was attached to the piece of fish. And that's closer to the edge of the fish versus 
closer towards the spine, which is where the fillets used to come from. And so you get a you get a lower quality meat to begin with. It is super expensive. A lot of restaurants have completely transitioned away from cod to where they if they if their fish and chips is a big thick flaky white fish, it's haddock. Haddock used to be more expensive than cod. Now it's cheaper. Well, or, these numbers are driven by how easily it is to get. So once cod was popular, we've all but depleted the supply. Oh yeah. I mean, people love cod. People love fish and chips. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's delicious. I mean, one of my favorite things in the world is just a is it, I'm I'm not fancy, like I'm I'm cheap and predictable. Drake's mix. I love crispy Drake's mix. You know, a little wet battered cod. It's wonderful with some tartar sauce. I could eat like twenty pieces. Like I'll I'll put it down. I like it. Well, and think about that. That Americans love fish and chips. Fish and chips is each one of those strips or pieces is you, you as you said about three ounces, mm-hmm. and there's uh, quite often three of them mm-hmm. so you know millions of people a day going into restaurants and eating nine ounces uh and, and many of these places offer a at a piece so we'll say on average nine ounces of cod and and how do we not expect to deplete the supplies of those fish you know and this is happening for many fish worse yet and it's a term that gets you going in the past is bycatch is that many species are now being depleted in in waste they're not even utilizing the fish because either a it's illegal to catch it so they have mm. to pretend like they didn't and throw it over the edge and by then that fish is dead b there's no market value currently and they haven't figured out how to make a market value or c they only have a contract to catch one specific kind and have to throw out the rest but in the meantime the vast majority of the of the creatures caught in those nets and that's die. primarily they die so a huge chunk of the ocean much like our 40% waste on our plates every day in the united states the huge a huge chunk of what we collect and kill in the ocean isn't even used if I were to explain that to someone, I would look at it more. I think the best way for me to say this is I would explain our fishing, our commercial fishing as um, innocence and casualties of war. We're doing in, in the name of dinner and convenience. We're doing war on the on the ocean. And all these these bycatch are are just casualties. And when I when I want to be very specific with this, it could be anything. It could be it could be turtles, shrimp, crab. It could be dolphins, small species of whales. It just depends on how big the net is, where they're, whether they're dredging or it's a floating net, and what they're doing with it. But if they're trying to capture, let's say cod, you know, most most cod is made from Atlantic cod because there's several species of it, and those only get to be like maybe 20 pounds. They're not a huge fish. They can get a lot bigger, but on average, they're not they're not a giant fish. But a net to capture a fish like that is got holes big enough to capture pretty much everything i mean like i i like to talk about bottlenose dolphins because everyone loves dolphins and they die a lot in nets mm-hmm. you know you it's it's not that it's not a pick and choose your kind of thing a lot of people like to pick the species that they're close to that they that they think are cute or adorable and that's the hand the the, the hill they stand on but at the end of the day the ecosystem is it's a circle of life and we keep throwing bombs in it. You know what I mean? So there is a system. We have taken pretty much the place of every alpha predator on the planet. In a lot of cases, especially on land, we've removed most alpha predators that stand in our way in the ocean. We, we haven't really been able to do that 
intentionally like there's no you're not going to go hunt all the sharks out you can fish them but we're doing more damage by just trying to get the food we want and it's 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 sad if you're a lover of of life and, and animals and stuff like that when you really look at the big picture what it costs to get something on your plate like really i mean we talk about embodied energy but at what point do we start including the casualties of the other things that die just to get us there you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's just absolutely I'm trying not to get really angry and run my <laughs> mouth because I, I do this a lot. And like I said, I, I say this from, from a, a, a step of hypocrisy because, yeah, I'm a cook. Yes, I enjoy the flexibility to go and buy whatever I want whenever I want. Does that mean that I'm uh, ignorant to the notion that it's probably not in the best interest of the environment? No, I understand. I get it. So as you're talking about the way we do things, we're talking nets the size, nets that would fit a 747 inside of them. And a quarter of the wild-caught fish that you see with that label are ensnared in those nets. Now, there's no way to guarantee you're only fishing for what you want when you're using a net that can cover a football field or more. And they do what's called bottom trawling. You know, the fish can't get out from underneath it, if you will. And it absolutely, you can see it in satellite photos where we have fished because of the yeah. scarring on the planet underneath and those habitats that that are under are no longer habitats so well, not can... only are we pulling all the life out but we're preventing homes for continuation of life well look at coral reefs man you want to talk about something that's that's integral to the uh sustainability of the ocean those are on the bottom of the ocean those are on the ocean floor when in uh, obviously when they, when they do these dredging there's certain places that are that are uh, allowed to to fish like that in certain places they're not allowed to but in those places they fish like that they 100 percent, sorry 100 percent prevent the possibility of any type of rehabilitation because every time it starts to calm down the population starts to reproduce they do it again and again and again well so there's only five percent of our oceans that is considered protected so when you say there are certain areas they can't use bottom trolling like that mm-hmm. And in those 5%, you can still fish. So there is really nearly zero places in this ocean that are truly protected. Actually, you get more protection for, for fish around wind turbines in oceans than you do in their natural habitats because they don't want the ships near the equipment and accidentally damaging electrical lines or anything else running down through the water. So it's actually safer for fish to be near those areas than it is in their natural habitat. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that at all. And actually, from a fish perspective, it works out because, you know, fish like shade, they like places to hide. So it makes sense that they would want to live underneath it. But also on on the practicality of it, it, it's not it's not surprising to me because people want to protect their investments. So I'm not surprised that that's the case. Uh, it is one of those things where because the ocean is so, so vast and the ocean is, you hear this said all the time, but the ocean is, there, there's a lot of it. It's never really been explored. There's a lot about the oceans we don't know. And, and, and we're always finding new species of things, typically in like the deep, dark parts of it, like the Mariana Trench and stuff thing. When they go real deep, they start finding things they didn't know existed. But it's practically space on Earth for us. And to think that we're just throwing these big old casualty nets like, well, we'll see what we get. Like, imagine the amount of species that have never been identified that are killed and then just thrown back in the water. It'd be, it'd be, 
Because, I mean, the average fisherman doesn't have a clue what they're pulling up. Like, they know what they're looking for. But if they're mm-hmm. not looking for it, they're not going to notice it. Just imagine. Think about all the things that have died that maybe have never been identified. Species that could have been almost wiped out before we knew they existed because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, and you're talking about these massive nets and the damage they create. The The destruction doesn't end when its usefulness goes away. The Great, the great Pacific Garbage Patch is nearly 50%. I think they say around 46%. The amount of plastics and waste that is in that patch is primarily nets. Well, that's you're right, and that's why it is the way it is. That's why it's almost a landmass of garbage, just because the nets are catching and holding everything else together. Well, and it's, I've been proven wrong on that, by the way. I went with an old NASA thing. You can't see it from space. It's not necessarily even close to a landmass, but there's so much there in that area that it covers the space that Texas would, but. If you were sitting in it in a boat and looking around, you wouldn't see a thing. Well, most I'd assume that most of the uh, most of the garbage doesn't have the buoyancy to to stay surface. Like, I mean, it's not going to mm-hmm. float in the very top. But when I say landmass, I don't mean you can walk across it. I just mean it takes it's a huge amount of space that is primarily just trash, garbage, and discarded nets are meant to float like that because they're nets. They don't want them at the top of the water. They want them in the water. Right, and so these nets continue to trap creatures after disposal these things are sitting in the ocean floor animals are crawling in them they're getting caught and still dying in these nets long after their use there was a article put out yesterday that a whale was discovered uh, in hawaii which we all know is a breeding ground from alaska to hawaii there's a trail where Whales come from Alaska to Hawaii, breed, have their pups, and then move back to Alaska. It's a whole, it's a, the, there's a huge whale watching industry. I was lucky enough to see whales during that time and pups, calves. but they had calves. Thank you. But they found the body of a 56 foot long whale, 100 or 120,000 pounds. 56 feet. There's only a few species of whales that even get that big. And when and it had passed, and when they opened this large creature up, they just found massive amounts of plastic bags and nets. So at 56 feet, and I am no expert, but I happen to love I love all things aquatic. 56 feet, it had to be like a baleen, like like some type of baleen whale. Um, it's possible. I mean, I mean, sperm whales get big too, but uh, I assume it's a baleen whale. Do they say what kind? Uh, I was looking here real quick, and I it just says whale. So AP News doesn't always get into the the details quite as far. But, but what I was looking at was is not only do these fish have to avoid us, not only do they have to avoid the things we we've, we've disposed of, but it makes it hard for them to even eat. What happened was so much plastic, so much net was inside this creature. That even though there was some, you know, some other nutrients that it would, had been collecting, it couldn't process it. Is this the one? Was this from January 27th? Yeah, January just 20th? recently. Yeah, it's a sperm whale. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so, we're, so we're also depleting life in every possible way. So when I, and I'm going to loop back a little bit, is I'm looking at, is, is my eating of fish better? 
or worse in one sense it's better because i start reading this stuff again and and knowledge is important it helps me make better decisions and i know the beef industry i know the chicken industry i know the pork industry and i know that the answer is almost exclusively stop eating meat but i don't necessarily i'm not in that spot yet i'm not there yet and when we talk about farm fishing or the, the yeah the fish farms that 49% of the fish and and creatures that we get are from those kinds of farms and you can tell cuz they have very little flavor and very and they have a lot less nutrients you're less satisfied when you eat them and it doesn't matter you know they use a they use a tremendous amount of antibiotics which has its own problems hormones and remember a lot of these fish no matter where we get them are filled now with microplastics so this whale ate everything it found and, and starved to death while millions of others that when we eat a fish that plastic can move from them to us it's called bioaccumulation yeah you know so as we get worse and worse and stewards of the land and of the ocean this becomes a bigger and bigger problem i think you covered a good chunk of fish farming issues but the quality is another one. It's supposed to be we fish farms so that we don't take from the ocean, except for we offer $35 billion in subsidies for fresh-caught ocean fish. So we're not necessarily asking people to stop fishing. These companies, we're encouraging them to do so, and we want the farms, that we have depleted the source so much that we now have to have multiple ways to get the fish so that we can waste 40% of it. Well, you got to realize that like the only way to really frame this, I guess what I'm going to say, when you look at the mass production of any food source for a global population, or even if you just scale it down to our country, there is no sustainable way to feed 330 million people, let alone billions of people. It doesn't exist. And I think that the the best way is to move away from that and to encourage people to locally source food amongst their own communities and to stop subsidizing these huge corporations and to stop pushing these industries that really are doing more harm than good. It, you People can like me for it. They can hate me for it. I don't really care. At the end of the day, if we're talking about the ugly truth, let's talk about the ugly truth. If we're going to feed millions and millions hundreds of millions of people it's going to leave a dent you don't raise five million head of cattle and then not have gas you don't you're not going to fish you know millions and millions of cod out and then not leave a dent you're not going to throw a net and catch twenty five thousand pounds of shrimp and not have a few dead other animals it just it, it's going to happen so the question is is if we don't want that to happen we want to discuss changing it how do we change it the answer is to scale down the answer is to get your foot off the gas, put it in reverse, look at the things we want to keep and the things we want to change and take the steps towards as many of those things at the same time as we can. The best way to do it is to locally source. Do I, does that mean everyone should go out and become a fisherman? No. Do I think that maybe they should try so they can understand how difficult it is to actually get those things? Oh, I do. I think they should have more of appreciation for the products they use very much. I absolutely do. I think everyone, everyone should really you know, take a second to learn what farming is like and to grow their own vegetables and to realize the sacrifice an animal makes when you raise it and you kill it for its food. Like to turn it into food 
it's so it's so disconnected, Michael. It, it, you don't realize that like, oh, you went to Starry bought some pork chops. At one point, that pork chop had a pulse. At one point, that fish had a pulse. Like it was a living animal, and you're eating a piece of it. You know, so a lot of it gets wasted. If we keep that disconnect, then the problem's never going to go away, and it's never going to be reduced, and it's never going to change. I, I understand that our big thing on this podcast is a little bit, little bit, big bit, but unfortunately, right now, that little bit, little bit, big bit. And the negative side is what got us here. So now we got to find a way to little bit, little bit backwards. And we got to find a way to find the, the practices that are the, the most sustainable that allow us to move forward without going crazy. Because I'm not going to sit here and tell you you should never buy fish again, ever. I'm never going to say that because it's fish. If you want to eat fish, eat fish. Just be real about it and, and understand where it's coming from. One of the things that drives me absolutely nuts is this concept that we cannot feed everybody on this planet. It drives me nuts. Grayson just came home from school doing a, a paper on helping him understand about climate change. And one of the number one reasons that they had on there was overpopulation. And <laughs> it, it, my 10-year-old was like, cool, genocide. I'm like, no, no don't you don't see. have to go that far. 40% of everything we eat is disposed of. 40%. That is... If we just, that's the low-hanging fruit. If we just got rid of the waste, the industry would have to change somewhat because we're not buying it all. If we just got rid of, hey, this was on sale, so I bought it all, and I'm going to let half of it rot in my fridge, and we let that be purchased by someone else who won't let it rot in their fridge, and we all consumed 95%, at least, of everything that came in, that itself would drop the amount of production needed to feed everybody. But then you go back to regional because I, I really think the answer for me getting fish is when I go somewhere, look for the most regional fish. Look for something that was locally sourced if possible. And if not, pick something that is from my region because that's going to help reduce the embodied energy of what ended up on my plate. But in the meantime, we don't talk about, hey, there's too many people, we can't feed them. We can. We just have to be smart on how we feed it. And people can't have every single thing at every single moment of every single day. Regional seasonal foods can feed people just fine. Permaculture farming can help heal the land. I'm sorry, regenerative farming. My mistake. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Regenerative farming can help cure the land while feeding people. You have this interaction between multiples. And another thing is... We have to, you're right, we have to build that respect with where we take our food from. One of the things I do like about the hunters in Michigan, and I'm going to take a little crap for this, is that they do have almost a spiritual connection to what they're doing. That when they, when they do shoot or kill a deer, every scrap of that deer is used for something. They have a connection to that food. And, we, and you don't get that at McDonald's. You don't get that at a restaurant usually. You don't have that connection because they try to disconnect you because do you really want to eat something that's staring at you at the moment or you knew had a life, all these different pieces, but we can, we can do these things. It's just a matter of how. So here's a couple of real funny things before I start to wrap us up. First things first, we don't even choose what is good and what is bad. We are told what is good and what is bad lobster right now is considered a delicacy of some kind okay it is it's i'm going to take you out for a lobster meal it 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 sounds like a big deal 
In the 1700s, it was a garbage food. It was served almost exclusively to servants, and the rest was thrown in as fertilizer. It was the chicken, uh, the poor man's chicken, if I quote, and that there was actual servant revolutions where they fought against where they worked and where they lived because they were served lobster. Now here we are, fast forward a hundred, couple hundred years later, and, and we're paying premiums for what they called garbage fish. We're told what's popular by what they can get in abundance. We're told what is fancy by what they can get in abundance. So maybe we make those decisions on our own. Maybe we like what we, we like and not what we're told to like. Maybe we stick to regional. I know that that's my solution. Stick to regional species and look for restaurants and places that go with sustainably caught seafood because I still do want to eat it. And every time we do one of these episodes, someone gets mad at us and yells at us about promotion of eating meat. What I'm saying isn't a promotion. What I'm saying is if you choose to, we make better choices that we don't go through, we don't buy all these things. First of all, let them rot. Or B, we don't go get these flavorless options. Because I'm learning this as I get older from when I was younger. There's a distinct difference in the flavor. No different than our vegetables. When you go to the grocery store and you buy that tomato versus when you swing into the Edible Landscape Project and you pick a tomato, distinct difference. We're finding that in everything we eat. And the quality matches the taste. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I need to make sure you understand, I would never advocate for genocide. I don't think there's too many people. But I do think that when I say scale down, you literally just explained exactly what I meant. It, yeah, if we it, reduce the waste, it scales by default. It needs to scale down, flat out. And it, it doesn't, there shouldn't be, it, it shouldn't be, A, it should not be subsidized by the government. Nothing should be. Not like this, not food. Food should be locally sourced. And, and you can say regional, I, you could do statewide. That could be, a, each state could be its own region. I think that's wonderful. Granted, we're uniquely poised in Michigan to have access to lots of yummy fish. But I think that when it comes to like the big picture on this stuff, if people just learn to have an appreciation for what they're eating. And I really like that you incorporated hunters. I love that actually, because I think that people that most hunters they do exactly what you said they go out they take the deer they use every part of it usually in terms of the meat they use every part of it and usually they've got a, one or two guys in the community they take all the pelts and they do things they make things with them you know what i mean like they the, the, the deer doesn't get wasted and that is that's how we should treat all of our food honestly it really is yeah and if we're going to here's the deal when you have respect for something you abuse it less. Yep. Bottom line, it is what it is. That is exactly why I'm saying it. There is so much waste. And this is something all of us can control. Okay, this is how, if we don't like how the industry does stuff, this is part of that building your positive footprint. We don't have to run around and yell at people and point at them and ridicule. We have to be good examples that when I decide that I'm cooking a plate and that plate has meat on it. It has a small portion and it does not go in the forever bend. It does not get thrown away. That's a disrespect to what we've done to get that meat here. 
and the embodied energy and the processes and everything else and the life of the creature. So that's something we control. If we, as a community, you know, people from Greening Your Life or other sustainability shows or wherever, whoever hears it, starts to act in that way, that is less sales and less sales breeds less need. Production. Yeah, less production. And that's how you control that. You hit so it in I think the wallet. You do. And that's why going through this exercise at least once a year for me when I talk about seafood is really important because if I, your normal life kicks in, we forget things, we move on, but I need the reminder every single year at minimum. It reminds me to be more respectful. It reminds me to reduce certain intakes. And that's why I liked this show. And I, that's why I liked doing this one as we did. Just like next week, we've got one called Poor Tax. Yes, that's we a do. whole different perspective. These perspectives give us respect and kind of gives us a game plan on how we can manage it. And I don't know. It's, that's something that's important to me. It reminds me of what I'm supposed to do. And for me, when I go out, it's still not going to be steak. I'm, I'm almost completely off generalized, just a steak, a slab of a piece of animal. It will be small portion fish. Or it will be some of these vegetarian options and occasionally chicken. And I know all these industry have their flaws, but no waste. Doesn't mean I eat it all there, but no waste. I don't know if I'm ever going to be into a point when it comes to going out to restaurants where I intentionally never eat meat. I, I love meat. I, I'm a big advocate of it. Some meats I like more than others. Just recently, I, I had lamb chops at one of the local steakhouses, and I never get their lamb. It's my very first time, but now I'll probably get it every time because I like it way more than their steak. I really enjoyed it. Just like their pork chops, they're out of this world fantastic, and their steak is okay at best. Yeah, I kind of feel like no one puts the effort into those dishes anyways. Why would I want them? <laughs> so I agree with that wholeheartedly. So anyways, that's, I guess, in a sense, that's the show we wanted to have today turned into a bunch of stuff. But it is more just a reminder that even though everyday life is very convenient and we can have anything at any moment, as long as we're thinking about it, no different than our normal consumer purchases. We stop and we think. Now, if you order a steak, you've ordered a steak. And that's okay. Because if you think about your decisions and you're thinking about them through the eyes of sustainability, you're going to make better decisions in the overall. And more people will see your decisions, and slowly, maybe they will start making those decisions. We're unraveling culture, a culture of waste that has been around a long, long time, and it's been embedded in most of us. So that's the show we had for you today. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or family member or even on social media. If you'd like to help Realistic Sustainability, you know what to do. Leave us the five-star reviews, leave comments, do show interaction on our sites and on the shows because that just tells the algorithm someone's watching and it did something to spark a thought that makes interaction possible. That's what they actually grade. So, if you get a chance, five-star reviews. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy, and I generally talk about them on the show. And if you think that realistic sustainability does a little more and you want to do a little more for it, then visit greeningyourlife.org forward slash podcast. That is not only where you can see some of the goofy stuff that Nick and I do, but 
it also allows you to support the show financially. And for those of you who already do, we do greatly appreciate it. It, it makes us feel warm, fuzzy, and special. And it kind of reinforces the fact that we know we're doing something worth doing. We appreciate you stopping in. And remember, we're only getting together each week to get a little bit better. Little bit, little bit, big bit. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike. And I'm your culinary concierge, Nicholas. Oh, I didn't get that one. I would need that in my notes. (laughs) All right, we'll see you next week.